Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Range of Capital podcast. This is a 15-minute long podcast and the clock starts now. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangely. With me as always is my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. It is Monday, May 2nd. Uh, there's been a bunch of news over the weekend on some stocks and mergers that we've mentioned in the past. So today we're going to be providing some updates on what's going on with all of them. We'll start by talking about our takeaways from Berkshire's annual meeting. Then we'll talk a bit about an investment Warren Buffett made in his personal account that shows he's still got it. And then we'll move on to provide a postmortem on the aborted Baker Hughes-Halliburton merger and wrap it up by talking about a bump for Apollo Global's proposed takeover of Apollo Education. So, Chris, why don't you start with your takeaways from the Berkshire meeting? Berkshire breaks and bumps. So, uh, Berkshire to start off with. Um, I listened to the whole thing. Uh, I enjoy it. I'm inspired by uh, Buffett and uh, by Munger. Um, I thought um, there was not anything incrementally new to what one might have known about Berkshire itself, if you've been paying attention to their uh, filings to date. Um, but uh, but it was it was a good weekend. I was particularly interested in what they had to say about Valiant. Yeah. So last week we said uh, one thing we were really interested to hear them talking about was Valiant, where we had heard Charlie Munger's views before, uh, but we hadn't really heard Warren Buffett's except kind of through the grapevine. Uh, and their views were it was damning. Uh, Charlie Munger said he compared it to a sewer. They said they thought it was terrible culture, terrible practices, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and the stock at one point was down 10% today on their commentary. Uh, so that was their views on Valiant. Chris, what about anything else? What was your favorite part of the meeting? Well, geez, you know, these guys don't short stocks, but if you can open up your mouth and drive them down 10%, you really should short <laughs> stocks. Uh, if not, we should at least be told ahead of time what they're going to talk about. Um, but uh, let's see. There was a gentleman who brought up cattle ranching who said that Charlie and Warren should get into cattle ranching. Uh, one of the questions yet, you always, you, you never know where these questions are going to go. Yeah, so I, I wrote that down. I th- my, one of my favorite parts was the cattle rancher, and he came on and he said, "Hey, Charlie Warren, I own a big cattle ranch in Arizona. Are you guys interested at all?" He basically said, "I'll sell it to you. Are you interested in buying it?" And Charlie immediately came on and said, "That is a horrible business. We have no interest." And Warren said, "Yeah, yeah, it's not for us. Uh, you know, we're not really interested." But it really showed, you know, the guy pitched and he said, look, I own this cattle ranch, world trends, uh, emerging economies drive demand for meat, world trends are improving, uh, there's a great outlook for it, are you interested in buying it? And they immediately went through their checklist and said, it's a business with no barriers to entry, capital intensive, it's very cyclical, not a business we wanted to we want to be in. And they didn't mince words or anything, they just said, no, we don't want to be in it. Uh, my other favorite part was... Just the pure amount of peanut brittle that these two could consume. Massive amount. It, it, it was unbelievable. They had a big box of C's candy peanut uh, peanut brittle and some uh, cherry Cokes on the table. And they might have gone through 7,000 sugar calories in just uh, six hours. So it was unbelievable. So unless you want to talk more about the meeting, why don't we switch about the Warren Buffett personal investment that kind of shows he's still got it. Warren Buffett's PA. Yep, Warren Buffett's PA. Do you want to uh, hop in and take it? Sure. He was asked about and talked about uh, an investment that he made uh, called Seritage. Yep. So Seritage was a spinoff slash rights offering from Sears Holding, ticker SHLD, late last year. And what they did was they took a bunch of their real estate and they spun it off into Seritage. And the basis thesis behind Seritage was... 
they have a bunch of these uh, Sears and Kmart properties that are on very attractive leases. Mm-hmm. And Searchage is going to take the leases. Uh, you know, Sears and Kmart aren't exactly performing well. Searchage is going to take the leases uh, and release them at higher rates to kind of, you know, a Dick's Sporting Goods or movie theaters or things that people actually want in malls nowadays. And the thesis was they're leased out to Sears at kind of, call it $5 per square foot, and the going rate for anchor-type mall properties is $10 per square foot. So they they do that type of close the Sears, uh, release it, and they'll make a ton of money. Uh, I think a lot of investors – oh, well, so if you assume they could make that switch, uh, shares were probably worth about $60 mm-hmm. per share at a uh, normal REIT-type multiple. And in late December, Warren Buffett, in his personal account – bought up about 8% of the shares, uh, and his average price was in the mid-30s. Uh, we know he bought the shares because he bought so many, 8%, that he has filed Form 13G, alerting people he bought it. And the stock pop- popped 10% from 36 to $40 per share just on his uh, purchase. Go ahead. It, it helps. Uh, it would have helped if they'd been short if you uh, get to have a stock go down 10% when you mention you don't like it and have a stock go up 10% when you mention you've bought it. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Uh, but this is something that, no, I think it's a, a terrific opportunity. It was even more terrific opportunity. Uh, Sears uh, has been uh, under some duress. Uh, REITs had been under some duress. People who like to spend their days pondering imponderables about macro were concerned about rates and such things. And Buffett saw and took an opportunity. Yeah, exactly. It's another uh, example of Buffett taking the long view. This was early December. It was right when the Fed raised rates. So people were scared of, quote unquote, rate sensitive names like Mm -hmm. dividend stocks like REITs. Uh, It had the Sears name. People hated that. He took the long view, said there's asset value here. And he's been rewarded. He uh, he bought shares around thirty five. They trade for fifty to five today. That's about four, and he is about forty million dollars richer. Uh, let, me, let me just throw in one last thing if you have a little more yeah, talent here, which is I, I think it's uh, Warren Buffett has this kind of I call it his faux folksiness. You know, he kind of you know you know I saw a good stock there and I took it, but. There was a lot going on in this area, including some very complex legislation that was going through that he certainly knew about and had studied carefully in terms of REIT spinoffs that were going to be disallowed subsequently. Mm-hmm. That he and Seritage slipped in. Seritage timed it perfectly. He timed his investment with Seritage perfectly. And I think that there was a lot going on that showed an immense amount of sophistication on his part. Okay, perfect, perfect. So, uh... We've talked about Berkshire Hathaway meeting takeaways. We've talked about Warren Buffett still having it. Why don't we move on to Baker Hughes Halliburton? Sure. We mentioned this on our April 6th podcast. Pfizer doesn't know how to make things happen. And we said uh, the deal was looking like it was going to break. The DOJ was objecting. Uh, On April 30th, the merger agreement would kind of expire. Baker Hughes could sell Halliburton. Close or we walk. Happened. Baker Hughes walked. They got $3.5 billion. Uh, Why don't you take it from there? I think if... Every breakup was accompanied by a $3.5 billion check. The whole idea of breakups would be much more positive in popular culture. It would make my personal life much more positive. I'd have multiple $3.5 billion more. You just feel good about things. Yeah, but uh, why don't you take – 
Why don't you take the outlook from here? What's sure. going to happen with Baker Hughes, uh, Halliburton, now that they're standalone? I am long Baker Hughes. I'm a, a molecule less familiar with Halliburton, but I would say that under the merger agreement, there were quite a few things disallowed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were meticulous about following the agreement. Now that Baker Hughes is outside of the agreement, they're going to get the money, and uh, we were... If it was virtually certain that the deal was going to break, it was somewhat less certain that Halliburton was going to avoid contentiousness about this. Mm-hmm. I'm always concerned that when the penalties are cash, you might as well litigate because you can settle for some percentage of the cash. So the fact that they simply said, oh, no, we'll just give you the money, yeah. as it was owed, uh, is uh, speaks well to their uh, virtue and uh, smooths things. Uh, well, and uh, It speaks well to that, but... The, the whole thing about this and why if I was a Halliburton shareholder, I might be upset is Baker Hughes – we mentioned this on the podcast. Baker Hughes went into the deal saying, Halliburton, this is an antitrust issue. Yeah. Like there's no way you're going to be able to close it. And Halliburton said, we have the best people on it, the best people on it. We're going to be able to close this. So Baker Hughes negotiated a very tight merger agreement with a very high breakup fee for regulatory reasons. Yep. And I, I believe if – Halliburton tried to contest it, then you know there'd be interest penalties, all mm-hmm. sorts of penalties if they tried to contest that. So, so it, it speaks to their virtue, but it also speaks to tight contracting. Exactly. And I would say that uh, we're now getting a big buyback, we're getting a big retiring debt, uh, and getting a lot of cost cutting that yep. would have been complex under the merge agreement, but now with a free hand. Uh, the nice thing about oil services is that you have a lot of variable costs, and those variable costs will be reduced. Yep. So I, I think that's all Right, the cost cutting was what was forbidden under the merger agreement, and now they can really just try to slash cost of the bone to make up for how far oil has fallen. I think the other interesting thing to think about: Baker Hughes is the number three player in oil field services. Halliburton's the number two player. Both of them reasonably unlevered. Even Halliburton, mm-hmm. after this big three and a half billion uh, payment, there's probably some more mergers and acquisitions coming in the oil field services sector. Baker Hughes specifically looks interesting. Do you want to talk about that? Um, it's possible that GE will buy all of Baker Hughes. They were well along in talks to buy a significant amount of Baker Hughes. The, As part of the Halliburton divest. Yes, package, to divest yes. to, to GE and to create a third competitor. Um, the uh, head of GE, Jeff Immelt, was on his last call framing his interest in oil and gas services as saying he'd be price sensitive. He will not pay up for the most optimistic, rosy scenarios. Mm-hmm. And so he's really uh, conscious in his post-transform GE where they have jettisoned their financial businesses. They are refocusing on industrial services. He's interested in oil and gas services. He thinks that this might be a good part in the cycle, but he wants to get a good price. Yeah, so I think uh, G very interesting GE. Instead of buying just little pieces of uh, Baker Hughes, they can buy the whole thing yeah. with a really nice balance sheet out in the tracks multiple. The other one that I'll mention that's interesting is Weatherford, who's mm-hmm. a smaller player who a lot of analysts thought uh, would really benefit from the Halliburton Baker Hughes deal because a lot of oil field service a lot of oil field companies might have looked and said, Okay, Baker Hughes and Halliburton have merged and now we only have Schlumberze or merge Baker Hughes Halliburton to deal with. We'll just send some business to Weatherford's way just so we keep a third player and keep this market competitive. In hindsight, that might have been a sign that, oh, this is an antitrust issue when people will give a non-competitive third-party business just so that they can keep a third party propped up. Might have been an antitrust issue, but Weatherford now looks interesting maybe as an M&A candidate 
If not, it kind of looks interesting because people were building in some of that uh, benefit from force work going to them. They might be too expensive unless they're bought. Go ahead. The deal was not worth a $3.5 billion option for Halliburton, but it is the case, uh, in fairness to Halliburton, that sometimes in the pendency of a deal, the fact pattern starts to really help or hurt your antitrust case. As it turned out, uh, the antitrust case that was weak to begin with became weaker in the course of the deal. Mm. The Norwegian sovereign uh, a buyer uh, was adamant that they wanted an integrated contract and this idea that a customer should be able to get a single contract integrated that it's not their problem to put together splice Mm -hmm. different parts is a somewhat novel theory at the eu and at the doj right now but it was one they were going to bring and it was one that looked more important to them as the deal went on and i think the deal was first announced late 2014 since then, all through 2015, the DOJ and this administration have gotten much more aggressive yep. on big M&A. So kind of the regulatory environment, uh, what we're dealing with today is a lot different than what they were dealing with in 2014, which also had an impact. Uh, unless you have anything here, why don't we turn to our last topic? So our last topic is Apollo Education, ticker APOL, is getting bought out by Apollo Global. Uh, we mentioned this for the first time on our March 28th podcast Apollo's 20% plus spread looks enticing. And the big news here is over the weekend, uh, Apollo Global raised their bid from $9.50 to $10 per share to entice a couple more shareholders to vote for the deal. So Chris, why don't you walk us through, why did Apollo Global raise their bid for Apollo Education? Good question. Uh, The performance on both the financial and regulatory front has been Uh, unimpressive for the deal target. However, uh, the major shareholders, the largest shareholders, have been uh, categorically against this deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, They did not have the vote. Apollo Global, the buyer, unusual to have a deal where the buyer and the seller coincidentally have the same name, but the buyer in this case, um, they wanted to do the deal. They thought they could make it work financially on an unlevered basis. And geez, if you have a deal that's a good deal at 950 and they're about to vote it down. You might as well give it a shot at 10. Yeah. So, uh, so far, 58% of Class A shares, which they need more than 50% to vote for the deal, have voted for the transaction. But only 80% of shares have voted. So the actual number of the Class A shares that have voted is around, I think that's about 45% as the math works out to. So they just need 5% more shares to vote for it. And Apollo Global is hoping by boosting from 950 to $10, they can get more uh they can just get those last few shareholders to vote and push this over the edge. Shares are currently trading at $8.70, which indicates investors still thinks there are a lot of risk for the deal. And uh, Chris, I'll let you hop in first. What are your takeaways? What do you think the risks are going forward right now? If I was the buyer, I would not be terribly happy with this tactic. I don't like ever giving something without getting something. Mm -hmm. They did not get any voting agreements with this. They did not choose to take any of the deal targets holders uh, to offer equity, uh, private equity in the deal. Um, You know, there are different tactics to bring this over the line when there's only 5%. Their view is that they can wrap this up with small holders. I believe it's correct as a view. Uh, It's very good when you are the decision maker, the referee, and one of the two participants. You get to decide when it's over. And so so it's very likely they'll get this vote. I will tell you, I, I think this is a gift for shareholders. I think they would be crazy to reject this bid. This was uh, widely shopped and no one else wanted to pay anywhere close to this price. There is still a ton of risk here. Uh, 
if you look in the proxy filing today, they uh, the company made some updated forecasts and estimates just continue to come down rapidly. Uh, in their last forecast in December, they were estimating $277 million in EBITDA for fiscal year 2017. Their new forecasts are between $195 to $230 million in EBITDA. So estimates have come down, what is that, almost 20 30% in four months. I mean, the business is deteriorating rapidly. Uh, Apollo Global actually has an out if the business deteriorates rapidly going fur- any further. So it's interesting to think they did this bump, but two or three months from now, they could be taking the out that they've baked in this contract saying the business is too bad. We don't want it. What do you do? You think by going from nine fifty to ten, and they did see these forecasts. Do you think that that is any indication that they'll do the deal even if forecasts deteriorate even further? It's a hard question. I don't have a cavalier answer to that. Um, I think they plan to do this deal. I think they can do it largely on the basis of the international opportunity and cash, and that they came into this deal with a grim view, a correctly grim view of the University of Phoenix. Um, but it's not a very tight agreement. So yeah. uh, so I think that we have a little bit of visibility through the end of the week. And uh, if I could give us credit for that, I won't claim credit for visibility much beyond. Yeah, I, I will say I think uh, – so the, the merger agreement still is on the December forecast, and I think the business is deteriorating so rapidly there's a really good chance it goes through uh, – the merger conditions and then Apollo Apollo Global will have a free option. Do we want to close this deal or do we break it? Uh, the business is deteriorating so rapidly. I think shareholders are crazy if they vote this down. A lot of them bought at 30 and they're getting taken out at 10, which is why they're so upset. But, you know, that's uh, life for you. It doesn't mean you should turn down a good deal. Anyway, we're way over time. Any any last thoughts or anything? I have nothing to add. Nothing to add. All right, that's all the time we have for today. Before we hit our disclosures, a reminder, if you like this podcast, Please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audio Boom. We're no longer on SoundCloud. Uh, if you have any feedback for us, please feel free to email it to us at podcast at rangeofcapital.com. Disclosures, I am long just a little bit of Apollo. Chris, I think Apollo Education, A-P-O-L. Chris, I think you are long Apollo Education. Baker Hughes, uh, Berkshire, anything I'm missing? Seritage and Weatherford. Seritage and Weatherford. Okay, great. So those are our disclosures. We will talk to you guys again on Wednesday. Thanks for listening.